Good morning. So good to be with you as we're gathering together here to worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're beginning a new series over the course of these weeks together, and we're back in the Older Testament. So I, what I'd love for you to do now is to make your way toward the back of the Older Testament to uh, the book of Zechariah. The easiest way probably to find that is to simply turn to Matthew at the beginning of the Newer Testament and then work your way back just a few pages. And there you'll find Zechariah, where what we're going to be doing is to explore together in the coming weeks on the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, and down through verse 5, will give us a running start on all this. And what I'd love to do is to read these verses to you and take it to what's the end of the first paragraph in your English Standard Version. I'd love to cover verses 1 through 9, but I don't think time permits that kind of thing today. So beginning of verse 1, down through verse 5 of Zechariah uh, chapter 12, we find these words. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Verse 2. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a, a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts and their God. So we're going to be examining these first five verses of Zechariah 12 as part of a, a little series that will take us from chapter 12 through chapter 14 together. But first of all, we're going to look to our Lord together now in prayer. And as we look to you, Father, we, we view you as the sovereign one. You're the creator. You're the sustainer. From, through, all things revolve around you. We thank you that in eternity past, you set up a strategy that you would send the second member of the Trinity into this world. We come into this world sinful by nature. The sinless one came to die for the sinful ones the perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
And then you validate it, the perfection of that sacrifice by three days later raising Christ from the grave. We know that he ascended into heavens. We know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we know, as we're going to explore today, and there will come that point when he returns. And we give you all praise. And all the issues of the present get resolved in that future moment. So, Father, what we're asking in a very extraordinary way is that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, what we're going to do, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, we made reference to the expedition of Ernest Shackleton. I'd love to be able to return to that story for just a brief moment because I think it illustrates what we are about to begin ex examining together. And when Shackleton, as his biographer points out, uh, was compelled to leave some of his men on what is known as Elephant Island, his uh, expedition to the Antarctic cut short. He wanted to be able to return and retrieve them, carry them back to England. But as the biographer points out, he was unavoidably delayed. And by the time he could go for them, he, he found his, to his dismay uh, that the sea had frozen over. The men were cut off. Three times he tried to reach them, but his efforts ended in failure each and every time, when finally he found a narrow channel in the ice, and he was able to make his way to the island. As the biographer goes on to inform us, guiding his small ship back to the island, he was amazed to find that his men not only were alive and well, but astoundingly, each and every one was prepared to get on board. And they were soon on their way to safety and home. And after the excitement ended, Shackleton asked how it was that they were ready to get on board so quickly. Well, they told him that every morning their leader, their leader rolled up his sleeping bag saying, quote, Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today." Unquote. In many ways, that story is a natural segue into what we're exploring together in these verses. Because what we're going to do today and the weeks to come is to, through the lens of Zechariah 12 through 14, we're going to examine this whole idea that the Lord, the boss, may come today. And we want to be able to be well prepared. And so we're looking very carefully at verse 1 down through verse 3. And what I want to do with you is to, with our inserts in front of us and ready to be able to examine this passage carefully, 
and simply draw out three observations that will sort of get this process going and understanding what the second coming of Jesus Christ entails. And the first observation comes out of verse 1. And we're going to phrase it like this, that as you and I, as we anticipate the return of the Lord, and note first of all the burden to be explained that's found here in verse 1. For it reads, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens, and founded the earth, and formed within him. Now, would you circle that word oracle? It comes from a Hebrew word, uh, mesa is the word, and it's best translated a burden, a heavy burden, a burden to be lifted up, to be borne. It occurs more than 60 times throughout the Old Testament. It's usually imposed by someone who's in charge and control over slaves, subjects, and so on. But eventually, in prophetic terms, it carried with it the idea of this one who's about to deliver these words, to share with the general public a pronouncement pertaining to an incoming and upcoming judgment. There is a crisis about to be addressed. And this is now what Zechariah is doing in this opening phrase, this opening word, the oracle, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, what he has done, Zechariah, is that he has taken the word oracle, a burden, and utilized it twice. The first time what you're going to be able to spot is found in chapter 9 of verse 1, where therein in succeeding chapters, that burden pertains to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Then in Zechariah 12, beginning in verse 1 through 14, the second burden, the second oracle, pertains to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So now he is taking these two oracles, these two burdens, connecting the dots for you and for me to understand the landscape by which is laid out for us the strategic plan of Jesus Christ entering into this world once to die for our sins, and the second time to put all things back in order. When you and I begin to grasp the significance of this, then we're better able to understand just what it is that God is doing here at this point. Now, notice furthermore, he goes on to say, the oracle of the word of the Lord. He wants his people to be able to embrace what it is that God wants to be able to say. Chris McClaney. When you speak, confusion fades. Just a word, and suddenly I'm not afraid. Because you speak and freedom reigns. There is hope in every single word you say. I don't want to miss one word you speak. Because everything you say is life to me. 
I don't want to miss one word you speak. Quiet my heart. I'm listening. Zechariah is opening up God's word. He's now going to canvas all that God has stated, impressed upon the hearts and the minds and the soul of the people. But what grips our attention is that this burden that is now about to be lifted up for everybody to examine is rooted in the word of the Lord it's very important that we take God's word seriously and apply it to events in a way that's timely. A.C. Gablin is remembered as a, a giant of um, biblical interpretation. He wrote books such as The Jewish Question. He was a Jewish Christian. He put his words into action by reaching out in ministry throughout New York City. And early in his ministry, his biographer tells us, he was challenged one day by, by a friend in the congregation. His name is Samuel Goldstein. Noting the pastor's large number of Hebrew books in his study, he, he made this statement to his pastor, it's a shame that you don't make greater use of your knowledge. You should go and share the gospel to the Jews. I believe the Lord made you to take up these studies because he wants you to go to our people, the Jews. That was the inspiration for the beginning of a remarkable ministry in New York City. Those who have spent time in New York City, you know the high Jewish population there. Hundreds of Jewish people crowded into halls to hear Gabeline expound the Old Testament, and many found Christ as their Savior. We're told that for five years he oversaw the Hope of Israel mission, wrote books and tracts, edited two magazines, and sought to lead both Jew and Gentile to faith in Jesus. But there's an extraordinary story about one of his volumes called Studies in Zechariah. When it was published, Gabeline sent a copy to every rabbi in New York City. We're told there was no response from any of the rabbis. However, sometime later, a young Hebrew Christian began to attend one of Gabeline's meetings regularly it turned out that he had been secretary to a well-known rabbi. The rabbi had thrown Gabeline's studies in Zechariah into the wastebasket. But the secretary had pulled it out, read it, and trusted Jesus as his Messiah. God's word doesn't return void, you see. Now, this is Zechariah speaking. His name, Zechariah, means Yahweh remembers. And what God is about to do at this point is he takes this burden that's being expressed through his word, and we're saying, Lord, when you speak, confusion fades, 
just a word and suddenly I'm not afraid because you speak and freedom reigns. There's hope in every single word you say. The oracle of the word, and notice what comes next. This is of the Lord. Don't gloss over the wording because of the Lord it comes with the idea that he is the relational sovereign, the covenantal name for our God, Yahweh in the Hebrew. And he wants a relationship with you through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That being said, the burden of the word of the Lord, this is concerning Israel. And as he begins to develop this, notice now, you're thinking at this point, we're talking about the second coming. Obviously, we're talking about all the various crises in the Middle East. Should the news be the starting point? I want you to notice what his starting point is to address the issues of the hour. He goes back to the creator. He goes back to the creation. And notice how it reads. Thus declares the Lord, that's the second time the covenantal relational name for the sovereign one's used. Notice now the poetic phrasing. Number one, who stretched out the heavens. Number two, founded the earth. Number three, formed the spirit of man within him. What's he doing at this point? They're in crisis mode. He's about to talk about the return of the Savior, and lo and behold, he begins by talking about the creation. Why? We would argue that in order to understand the future, you're going to have to look through the lens of the past. Your starting point will shape your ending point. How you begin says a lot about how you will end. And whatever you take as your starting point is going to shape your view of life. Now, while we have pundits right now trying to figure out what's happening in the Middle East, and there's Hamas, there's Hezbollah, and there's the Houthi, and how Iran is, seems to be funding funding these various enterprises. And when you do your, your homework, you know that there's an ethnic connection between Iran and Russia. And now you're trying to figure out, and how does all this fit together? But you know that whatever you take as your starting point is going to shape your view of life. And so he takes his starting point in eternity past, drives it in with this relational name for God, and says, I want to poetically draw three elements of the way in which we understand the creator and relationship to his creation. Stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. We, those of you that have science in your training and your background and your schooling, you know that we do not pit Christianity versus science or science versus Christianity. 
but rather it's the matter of Christianity versus naturalism, not science. God created science, and the physical structure of the universe is exactly what is needed to support life. That's the design, and the designer stands behind his design. You take water, freezes, expands, floats. You think about the Earth and its proximity to the sun. What would happen if it was closer? What would happen if it's further removed? You ponder gravity. If it were slightly stronger, the cosmos collapses. You examine the electrical forces, the electron as it relates to the proton, and what God has done is that he's established balance. For if the electron is slightly more charged, then every atom is negatively charged. And then you have everything repelling and the cosmos explodes. You take these basic principles, you put them all together then, and then what you and I begin to think through very carefully is that what Zechariah is doing is he's saying, this is how you take a starting point and work it out practically. You go back to the designer who stands behind his design. And when you begin to work that through, then you know generation by generation by generation you are being given ongoing evidence of the fact that God is sovereign, but by using the name Yahweh, he's saying, not only is he sovereign over us, he wants a relationship with us. When you think about the creation, a few questions come to mind. In the tension and the conflict with the uh, philosophy of evolution, such as what fossil record is there of any transitional fossil? indicating that one order evolved into another. Another question. How do we reconcile the second law of thermodynamics with the universe as we know it? To put it this way, if the universe is winding down, doesn't that presuppose that sometime in the past it was wound up? and by what means, and by who. And when you're talking with someone who argues for the Big Bang Theory, the simple question is, and what caused the Big Bang? Or who caused the Big Bang? At this point, what you and I are doing is we are exploring the whole matter of how this universe functions. And so he's using here these various participial verbs stretched out, lays the foundations, forms the spirit of man within him. And you pull all that together, and here now is your starting point for being able to understand the ending point regarding all time. Before you get to Armageddon and try to figure out what's going on now to get to that point then, you start with the creator and the creation and think through how it all began and how we got to the point that we're now at. And then you do as Zechariah did. You take this burden, it's of the word, and you say, I'm listening.
And I'm listening as the one who is the relational one, Yahweh, speaks. And thus declares Yahweh. And then three significant phrases stretched out the heavens, number one, founded the earth, number two, formed the spirit of man within him, number three, and now you're ready to inch forward. You allow the future to be understood through the lens of the past, the lens of God's works, the lens of God's word. And now the burden to be explained in verse one leads naturally into, second of all, the siege to be expected in verse two. That's your second observation, the siege to be expected. Look carefully now at how this begins to unfold. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Now, as we and I, you and I have talked about in prior times, whenever the behold is used, it's a visual to communicate the verbal. There is something dramatic that he wants to be able to make a statement concerning. Look for the beholds of the Bible and ask him, what is God saying with that behold? Now, notice it goes on to say, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. It does not say that Jerusalem is about to simply become a cup of staggering. God is in this. He is now going to use Jerusalem. It becomes the epicenter of his strategic plan. I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Now, we're going to be talking about Jerusalem repeatedly, um, in the coming weeks with regard to God's strategic plan. But there's a burden here. It takes us to that second burden. The first pertained to the first coming of Jesus Christ in chapters 9 through 11. The second burden, chapters 12 through 14. And here, one of the key phrases in chapters 12 through 14 is the rep repetition of the term Jerusalem it occurs 22 times in this section. He's saying that in the final days, Jerusalem is of high significance. So now you're watching the news, you're reading the newscasts, you go to your, your news sources, and now you're saying to yourself, okay, I gotta keep my eyes open to all things pertaining to Jerusalem. Now what I do with my, with my phone, I'm checking out the Jerusalem Post daily, catching up on what's happening in the Middle East through that lens. Whatever means you use, whatever news sources, make certain that Jerusalem is the center of your observations. Because God is now saying, behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Now, when we get to that word, a cup of staggering, at this point, what he's doing is that he is using um, imagery of intoxication, drunkenness, which is a symbol in scripture of God's judgment. What's fascinating is that the Hebrew word that he uses is that of a bowl more so than a cup because a larger vessel is needed for all the nations to get drunk. 
Now, as he begins to develop this, what he wants to be able to say is that when Jerusalem is under attack, Jerusalem itself is going to be the means by which uh, the enemies are staggered. Now, if you've dealt with anyone who continuously is getting drunk, they might think they've got life under control and they're drinking out of in control, but one thing you begin to notice is erratic behavior. They may not realize it, but family members do. They might deny it, but the family members are able to see reality. What happens with this form of drunkenness being described here is that drunkenness leads to erratic thinking, erratic decisions, erratic choices, where the present begins to break down, therefore the future begins to break down. What God is saying is that he is allowing Jerusalem then to be this bowl by which the enemies of God's people are intoxicated, staggered. They are losing their footing and they don't even realize it. Others begin to notice how, how erratic their behavior is. Now look very carefully at the Middle East at this point. Uh, the media, the news pundits, and so on are trying to figure out the erratic behavior of what is occurring with Hamas, what is taking place with Hezbollah, and so on. What I want to be able to say is that you look at the Middle East through the lens of God's word. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup, a bowl of staggering, of intoxication. And you look carefully at that. You think about that. You're asking, what is God going to do with that? You're saying, I'm listening, Lord. Show us what you're going to do next. And he says, it's going to be a cup, a bowl of staggering to all the surrounding people. So now you take the concentric circles around Jerusalem. If you go eastward, of course, you're making your way to Jordan. If you go westward, you're making your way to Egypt. You go northward, you've got Lebanon there, you've got Syria there, and you notice how Hezbollah, which I consider to be a greater threat than Hamas, because there's a direct funding that is occurring with Iran at this point. And then, as we said a few moments ago, there's Iran, and Iran has got an ethnic connection with Russia. Watch the connections between Russia and Iran in the midst of this staggering, in the midst of this intoxication being described here. And here's Jerusalem that looks so vulnerable in the eyes of the public, in the eyes of the world, but you see, God has chosen Jerusalem to be the vehicle the mechanism to be able to achieve his purposes. Therefore, while everybody else is watching this, this erratic behavior unfolding regarding all the surrounding peoples, what he says next, there is a siege. It's a very intensive attack. There is a siege of Jerusalem that will also be against Judah. And so it's not only within Jerusalem, 
but also uh, the area surrounding Jerusalem in the area of Israel. When you explore this then, you're getting a better understanding of what will be happening. You see the burden about to be explained in one, the siege uh, to be expected in verse two. And now I would argue that each prior attack upon the Jews was simply another installment in God's installment plan leading to the final attack, which is described more fully in Revelation chapter 16. Here was an installment. 1948, Arab-Israeli conflict, war, broke out as soon as, as statehood was declared for Israel. There was an opportunity for Israel to seize Castel. It was an Arab village that controlled the western approach leading to Jerusalem. The news report tells us, defense of the village was turned over to 70 men of the Jerusalem Haganah. Naturally, the Arabs regrouped and counterattacked under their leader, the Islamic Arakat, where 400 men came descending down the hills, shouting out, Allah Akbar, God is great. They swept down on the Jewish positions, driving the Jews from their trenches, and then from the quarry buildings, and eventually into the outskirts of the village itself. But then, but then, problems began. The Muslims were exhausted. Most had been without food for over 24 hours. Time out while they send for village women to bring food to the attack again. Uh, halfway through their assault on the village, they run out of ammunition. No one thought to procure an adequate supply. Time out again, while couriers go off to buy ammunition. But after they obtained ammunition, Jewish ammunition found Erekat, their leader, and there was only one medic and one first aid kit available to the villagers. And the medic insisted that Erekat be carted off to Jerusalem. The one who was leading the attack against Jerusalem is being carted off to Jerusalem for treatment. Now, Erekat knew that without his presence, the assault was going to fizzle. His villagers were always looking to the charismatic leader for their inspiration, but there was no other leader. And so Castel remained in Jewish hands. The Arab forces gradually dwindled, and they left the field, and Jerusalem remained intact. My argument is each and every attack against Jerusalem is simply another installment on the plan that leads toward what I will call the final installment, the final attack still to come. But everything seems to be moving in a certain direction. Now, let's say you and I want to explore Jerusalem. Let's do it together for a few moments. And so look what appears on the screen. And as you look very carefully, what you find is that when you make your way in and through, there are four quarters here by which we are to understand uh, what, how Jerusalem is laid out. Notice the size of the Muslim quarter in comparison to the other quarters. 
Here's the Christian quarter. It's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is to be found. The Armenian quarter over here. And last but not least, the Jewish quarter here. Here's the Dome of the Rock. Here's that famous golden gate that ties in with the idea of Jesus Christ's first time of entering into Jerusalem, declaring himself to be um, king of the Jews. And it's reference to the idea of the second coming. But let's say we want to get a better handle upon our, what we're seeing when we're in Jerusalem. Look what comes next on the screen. So as we make our way in, let's take the four quarters. And if you've been there, you're going to notice that um, the cleanliness is going to differ depending upon which quarter you're in, uh, the nature of each quarter, even the way in which people relate in each quarter. Here's the Christian quarter. Here's the Muslim quarter. Here's the Armenian quarter. Here's the Jewish quarter right here. And when you're walking about from one to the next and you've got your tour guide in front of you, you might be asking, okay, in light of this, in light of what I'm reading here, how does God work this out? Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup, literally a bowl of staggering. Jerusalem is going to be so much of an intoxicant, it's going to cause the attacking crowds to simply stagger in their efforts to overcome the people of, of Jerusalem where the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah, so it extends outward. How do we understand this? Because there is Jew and Gentile. In fact, there is Jew and Arab. There is a Muslim influence there right now as well, as a Christian influence, as well as the, as the religious Jewish emphasis. We've got to keep working this through. If this one is the burden to be explained, Verse 2, the siege to be expected. Back to your text. In verses 3 through 5, I want you to notice thirdly the inhabitants to be strengthened. Now, as verse 3 begins, what you're going to find is that there is still another phrase, another word that is used repeatedly uh, to describe what God is doing here at this point. It's the phrase, on that Day. Now we're going to be exploring that again and again and again in the, in the coming weeks. But what he's referring to is Revelation 16, 14. Where the spirits of demons go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them together into the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Revelation 16, 14. On that day, I will make Jerusalem... Now, notice the wording here. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Right after the heavy burden described in verse 1, Jerusalem is now being described as a heavy stone. This heavy stone is for all the peoples, not some of them. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Interestingly, the Hebrew word carries with the idea that they're going to herniate themselves. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. 
And now this global emphasis and attack is such that all the nations of the earth will gather against it. What you and I have to see at this point is that there is this growing anti-Semitism that is occurring. You see it in the news. You're seeing it right now on the college campuses, the universities. You're seeing it in the cities. And as you watch this, the chants that go out and even the tensions that are arriving <coughs> in, in Congress and how funding is to be utilized, all this comes into play. So now, for repetition purposes, you take three and you tie it to verse four. On that day, declares the Lord, notice now what he will say. I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Sorry, the equestrians in this congregation. But notice here what he's saying. In essence, he's saying that the various vehicles and mechanisms that will be used for mobility purposes to attack Jerusalem are going to be disabled. And you say, well, how is God going to be able to distinguish all those within Jerusalem? The answer is this. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. The phrasing, keep my eyes open, carries with the idea, I will look upon Jerusalem with a distinguishing eye. He's able to make such distinctions when you look at the various quarters of Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. What he's doing now is he's contrasting uh, eyes that see and eyes that do not see and showing the extraordinary confusion that unfolds in that final day. The result of this in verse 5 is then the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And that's where we're getting our third observation, the inhabitants to be strengthened. And what we are being told at this point is that the strength comes not through this generic word for God, but through the name Yahweh, the relational name but furthermore, the relational is tied to the military because he is the Lord of hosts. He's tying this in symbolically then to the idea that this is military intervention and God breaks in and puts all things in order and their relationship is referred to as their God, which leads to the basic question, is God your God? if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Which leads us back to that Shackleton illustration. When Shackleton was amazed that they were able to get on board so quickly and return to England. And he asked, how could this be? They were told, they told him that every morning their leader rolled up his sleeping bag and said, quote, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today to be continued. Let's stand together.
in a short period of time, we have taken the idea of the creational as our starting point. Allow it to be such that we understand the future in light of the past. We understand not how man works, but how God works. We're able to see that you're the timeless one. You stand outside of time. But in the fullness of time, you send Jesus Christ into this world. And the timeless and the timely converge even in this phrasing of on that day, repeated again and again. So Father, we pray now in the coming weeks as we explore these verses together. And we're in conversations with people at work or in school. And maybe the talk is about what's happening in this world, even politically. What we now have is an on-ramp, an on-ramp conversationally to begin to talk about how all this comes together in a way that gives you all the glory and all the praise. And we give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.